0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, it's another dive into the Julio-Claudian saga. Previously, we learned about the early days of Emperor Tiberius' reign, how he attempted to navigate Roman politics, but unfortunately realizing that he was far from both the man and ruler that Augustus had been. Well, we'll leave Tiberius waiting in the wings until the next Julio-Claudian episode. This time around, we're learning about his nephew-slash-adopted son and overall beloved hero of Rome, Germanicus. I know I've said this about quite a few people within the Julio-Claudian saga, but there was a real chance that, in another timeline, Germanicus could have been Emperor of Rome and he probably would have been a decent one at that. He definitely would have been beloved by the people. Germanicus was married to Agrippina the Elder, the biological granddaughter of Emperor Augustus and a woman who in the past I claimed to be the center point of the Julio Claudian saga. Obviously, as her husband, that means Germanicus fills a very similar role. Basically, everyone loved him during his life and even after his death. Every big name Roman historian, such as Suetonius and Tacitus, gushed over him and lamented his passing. He was to the early Roman Empire what Alexander the Great was to the Greek world, and also what Alexander was to the Romans. Those are some pretty big shoes that needed to be filled, but did Germanicus actually deserve all that praise? Let's find out. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Rome in the first century CE in Rome Wars, A New Hope. the background history lesson for this episode is one that I've put off for a while and was always hesitant to do. If you've listened to this show for long enough, maybe you've picked up that I'm not actually a big fan of military history. I think battles can be interesting because that can drastically change the course of history. Also, militaries are actually important for other things such as technological development. The number of everyday items that were invented specifically for use in both world wars is actually insane. But I don't necessarily care about the strategies and makeups of historical armies unless they were absolutely wild. In my personal opinion, there's this really weird slippery slope that military history fans tend to approach that lead them falling down and thinking Nazis are cool. Nazis aren't cool, they're really bad that's all to say that for this history lesson, we're actually going to learn about the Imperial Army of Rome, or at the very least, a very basic overview. Germanicus was first and foremost a war hero so it only makes sense that the Roman military will play a large role in his story. So let's begin with the major groups within the Imperial Army of Rome. First up is the Legion. I've mentioned legions several times in past episodes but never really explained what they were. A legion is the largest unit of soldiers within the Roman army, numbering 5,000 soldiers. These soldiers were all heavy infantry, meaning they wore armor, carried shields, and used swords or pole arms as their primary weapons. Another thing about the legionary soldiers is that they were all citizens of Rome. This might sound obvious, but it's not that simple. Being a citizen of Rome was everything to the people of Rome, but it didn't just mean someone living within the borders of the empire. In order to be a citizen of Rome, both your parents had to be Roman citizens at the time of your birth. There were some exceptions, usually only just if the mother wasn't a citizen. And even then, there were different classes of Roman citizens, but that's info for another time. There were 25 legions in existence under the reign of Emperor Tiberius, meaning 125,000 Roman citizens were enlisted in the army during this time. The next major group within the Roman army was the auxilia, which was formed during the reign of Augustus. Unlike the legions who were made up of Roman citizens, the auxilia, which is the Latin word for support, were made up of non-citizens, referred to as the Peregrini. Because Rome had greatly expanded over the last century and not many people who were conquered were blessed with Roman citizenship, about 90% of the people living within the borders of the empire were considered Peregrini. A single group within the Auxilia was referred to as a cohort and contained only 500 soldiers. While the legions were mostly heavy infantry, the Auxilia filled basically every other role – light infantry, cavalry, and archers. Also, because these groups weren't made up of Roman citizens, it was usually best to make sure that a single cohort was comprised of a homogenous ethnic group and named after said group, such as the Cohors I Britonum, that was composed of non-citizens in Britain. These units were not as well structured as legions, at least not during the first century CE. Around the second century, auxilia began approaching similar structures to the legions, at least in terms of equipment. The final and most unregimented of the three main branches was the Numeri. Literally translated as Numbers, the Numeri were groups of soldiers formed by local tribes within a region. They differed from the Auxilia as the Numeri were usually from regions that were not fully conquered by Rome, meaning they were quite literally Barbarians. Barbarians here referring to the actual meaning of the word outsiders rather than the idea of being brutish and uncultured. Each Numeri was usually funded by their local leader, so the Numeri would look drastically different depending on where you were within the empire. There are plenty of other smaller groups that coexisted as part of the Roman military structure, such as the Vigiles and the Praetorian Guard, but I've either already gone over those or planned to for specific reasons in the future. The only other aspect I'll go over here is that you might have heard of the term Centurion, these were mid-level officers who controlled 100 soldiers there were also decorians who controlled 10 soldiers the higher level offices especially in the legions were almost always filled in by nobles or in the case of the auxilia senior ranking centurions and that is a very brief overview of the imperial roman army the army that allowed rome to conquer most of europe western asia and northern africa the same army that will bring forth Germanicus and turn him into a hero of the people. So first things first, his name at birth was not Germanicus, what was it? So, no one is sure, in all likelihood it was either Nero after his father or Tiberius after his uncle because that's how you named your son in ancient Rome. He could have also been named Decimus because that was his father's name at birth, which he later changed to Nero. But that's not important. He was born in 15 BCE to Nero Claudius Drusus, aka Drusus the Elder and adopted son of Augustus, and Antonia the Younger, the younger daughter of Octavia, Augustus's sister, and her husband, Mark Antony. Clearly, Germanicus and his siblings had an outstanding pedigree within the Roman upper class. And speaking of Germanicus's siblings, they would play important roles in the Empire, one for the good and one for the not-so-good. First up is Claudia Livia, usually referred to as Lavilla. She was originally married to Augustus's biological grandson and successor, Gaius Caesar. After Gaius died in 4 CE, Lavilla was eventually married to Tiberius's son Drusus. Germanicus and Lavilla's younger brother was Tiberius Claudius Nero, the same name as his grandfather and uncle, but most historians just tend to refer to him as Emperor Claudius, so clearly he'll play an important role later in the Julio-Claudian saga. In 9 BCE, when Germanicus was only around 6 years old, his father Drusus the Elder was out campaigning in Germania. We covered this a couple Julio-Claudian episodes ago, so go listen to episode 35 if you haven't done that yet. Drusus the Elder was all set to receive this swanky Cognomen Germanicus, but he fell off his horse and died. It was more dramatic than that, but I'm saving time here. In memory of Drusus's achievements, both of his sons were given the Cognomen Germanicus. Also due to Drusus's death, young Germanicus was technically now the head of the family, because that's how things worked back then, give the title to the 6 year old rather than the mother. When Gaius Caesar died in 4 CE, Augustus scrambled to figure out his line of succession. Because Germanicus existed as a male relative of the emperor, he was technically in the running. Well, obviously he was not chosen as successor. However, Augustus's plans for the Principate-slash-Empire still had room for young Germanicus. When Augustus adopted Tiberius into the Julii family, he also ordered that Tiberius adopt Germanicus. Now he was no longer, insert name here, Claudius Germanicus, but Germanicus Julius Caesar. And now that Germanicus was a Julii, he was given the full treatment of presumed future royalty. Every other young man related to Augustus, Germanicus was quickly given a political position within the blossoming empire. He was made a quaestor, basically a slightly above entry-level bureaucracy position, at the age of 21 even though the legal age for such a role in the empire was 25. Along with that, he was inducted into the Roman army and shipped off to the province of Illyricum, an area that covers the western Balkans along the eastern shore of the Adriatic Sea. His uncle, Tiberius, was already in Illyricum attempting to put down a revolt caused by the Pannonians, people from the modern northern Balkan states, and the Dalmatians, that word referring to the tribes of the region of Dalmatia in Illyricum and not the dog breed. Tiberius had been in Illyricum for about a year fighting against the two tribes. However, the war was beginning to change when Germanicus arrived with his group of militiamen and former slaves. Not really an exciting option for backup, but still better than nothing. Now, the locals of Illyricum had resorted to retreating into the mountains where they had fortified bases. The Roman army was not equipped to take on enemies in this manner. Romans were used to classic warfare. Two armies meet on a flat fighting ground, the best group wins. So while the Roman army was not in serious danger, they definitely weren't making much ground against the rebels. Tiberius was hoping to win via a war of attrition, but that strategy meant spending much more time in Illyricum than Augustus wanted. Germanicus quickly proved that he was more than just a nobleman given a charge of a ragtag group of soldiers. He led his army into modern-day Bosnia and Herzegovina to take on an Illyrian tribe called the Mazai. Germanicus's leadership caused the Romans to win the battle. By the end of the year, several more legions, the Roman historians say about five, from further east in the neighboring provinces provided further backup to Tiberius and Germanicus. Instead of fighting the Illyrians head-on in the forests, they chose to put down the rebels in the surrounding farmlands, choosing a more proactive scorched-earth strategy to further weaken the rebels still hiding in the mountains. The next year, the Pannonian rebels began to collapse after their leader, Penetes, was sold out and handed over to the Romans by one of his commanders, Bato the Brucian. Ironically enough, Bato the Brucian was later defeated in battle by another Illyrian tribe, the Destiades, who were also led by a man named Bato. Because of the prominence of these two Bato's, the entire uprising in Illyricum is known in Latin as the Bellum Batonianum, War of the Batos. Since he had done so well against the Masai, Tiberius started giving Germanicus more soldiers to command, and Germanicus went on to achieve further victories against the Illyrians. It got to the point where his own soldiers started calling him Imperator, meaning commander. Imperator actually held quite a bit of weight in Rome. During the Republic period, it was a title bestowed upon a leader by their men. And then that leader could go to the senate and say hey my guys called me imperator can i have a triumph now however imperator changed connotations once it was attached to augustus during his civil war against mark antony the only people who were really allowed to be called that were relatives of augustus and even then it was only used lightly in 9ce the rebellion was finally put down When Germanicus returned to Rome, he was given a military triumph along with the other leaders of the Roman army, though his triumph was not held until later for reasons we'll get into in a bit. Now, Germanicus wasn't just grandson of the emperor. He was a war hero, the best kind of hero in the early Roman Empire. The age of Germanicus had begun. Although the Roman army was successful in Illyricum, things were not faring as well to the north of Rome's borders in Germania. The legions in Germania were being led by a man named Publius Quintilius Varus. Varus had a long-standing relationship with the Julio-Claudian family. He had supported Augustus against Mark Antony and had become close friends with both Marcus Agrippa and Tiberius. He even gave a eulogy at Agrippa's funeral alongside Tiberius. He had been put in charge of the three legions in Germania. Well, in 9 CE, a Germanic leader named Arminius led an attack against the Romans. Arminius was technically a Roman citizen, having been taken by Germanicus' father about twenty years before and sent to Rome as tribute. He was taught the ways of Roman combat and became a fairly wealthy man in the social hierarchy before returning to Germania, this time under the leadership of Varus. While pretending to be within the good graces of Rome, Arminius actually banded together the disparate Germanic tribes that had been defeated by Tiberius. In fact, the only reason that Arminius was able to perform such an act was due to the fact that many of the legions that had been in Germania had been transferred to the Balkans in order to help Tiberius put down the revolt in Illyricum this also brings in an interesting topic about how Rome's enemies could fight back against what was supposed to be the greatest army in Europe. You see, Rome was organized. Incredibly organized. That was technically their secret weapon. It's really hard to defeat an enemy when they are so tightly packed together that you can't get an in, or when you actually defeat someone, hey, there's just another guy who already knows where to step in. However, that's only a secret weapon if you can quickly defeat your enemy. If a war becomes protracted, your enemies start to recognize your strategies. If you're a fan of history, maybe you've heard of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. He goes into this very well with his episode over Julius Caesar versus the Celtic people of Western Europe. So give that episode a listen if you're interested in that sort of stuff, it's very good but also maybe don't because I also plan on doing an episode over that at some point in the future. Your secret weapon is also further broken down if you teach your enemies that secret, which Rome did with Arminius. Whoops. Long story short, Arminius' alliance of Germanic tribes dealt a grueling defeat against Varus' armies at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. It was so bad, in fact, that this defeat would essentially convince Augustus not to make an attempt to conquer all of Germania. So, what does this have to do with Germanicus? I mean, at this moment, nothing. He's back in Rome being hailed as a celebrity for both his military victories and his burgeoning political career. In fact, he's just been given permission to run for Consul of Rome early if he wants it and rumors of him being made proconsul, essentially the governor, of several provinces is also being discussed. At this point, he and Agrippina have had at least two children together, two sons named Nero and Drusus, both of whom were adopted as official grandsons of Tiberius, so add on Julius Caesar to both those names. However, once Germanicus was actually made proconsul of the land where he got his name in 11 CE, it became his problem. Augustus ordered both Tiberius and Germanicus to cross the Rhine and defend the honor of Rome against the Germanic people. Germanicus campaigned alongside his uncle for all of 11 CE until suddenly, big news! He had been elected as Consul of Rome for the year 12 CE despite the fact that he technically didn't have most of the qualifications for the position. It was almost certainly a political move on the part of Augustus to ensure the line of his succession. Agrippa Posthumus, Germanicus's step-cousin, families get weird with this much intermarriage, was falling out of favor with the Emperor, so making Germanicus consul solidified Germanicus as second in line for the seat of Emperor. Also another pretty major thing happened in 12 CE. On the 31st of August, Agrippina the Elder gave birth to a son who the couple named Gaius Julius Caesar. Who we'll talk more about a bit later and a lot a bit down the line. Psst, this is Caligula. With a year of political power under his belt, Germanicus was made commander of the eight legions in Germania in 13 CE. That was about one third of Rome's total military strength now under Germanicus's control. He continued fighting against the Germanic tribes into the next year. In 14 CE, Emperor Augustus died, meaning that Germanicus's adopted father was now the new Emperor of Rome. The same day that Tiberius was appointed as princeps by the senate, the senators of Rome also decided to send a letter to Germanicus. Hey buddy, so good news and bad news. Bad news, your grandfather, the living god Emperor Augustus, has died. Good news, you now have proconsular imperium proconsular imperium was that fun, special brand of power Augustus had given to both Marcus, Agrippa, and Tiberius that essentially made them second in command of the emperor with major power of the military and the provinces of Rome. However, news of Augustus' death also spread throughout the rest of the military. With news that the emperor was dead, talk of mutiny began. (laughs) Unlike many Roman military leaders who tended to go at things alone, just a man and his fellow soldiers, Germanicus brought his family along on his campaigns in Germania, at least his wife and youngest son Gaius. In order to raise morale among the troops, Germanicus gifted his son a pint-sized version of a legionary's uniform complete with a mini-set of caliga, the Roman word for boots, some Caligula, if you will. As the soldiers saw young Gaius running around in his military garb, the nickname Caligula stuck, and that's how we know him today. Just thought I'd throw that there before we get back to, you know, the mutinies. So, Augustus was dead and Tiberius was emperor. Hopefully you listened to the previous Julio-Claudian episode so you know that despite his best efforts, Tiberius was very much not Augustus when it came to running the empire. The politicians knew this. Tiberius himself knew this. You know who else knew this? The soldiers in Germania. But you know who was a hero of Rome who was incredibly popular with the Germanic legions? Yep, Germanicus. Some of the soldiers started swearing their allegiance to Germanicus as the new princeps rather than Tiberius. Obviously, this was bad news for Germanicus, who was very much loyal to his adopted father. He needed to come up with a plan in order to ensure the loyalty of his soldiers. His first choice, and a really dramatic one at that, was that Germanicus announced he would commit suicide if the soldiers continued calling for him to replace Tiberius. This quickly turned on Germanicus when, I guess obeying him 100% whatever Germanicus says goes, some soldiers began offering him their swords so he could kill himself. Changing tactics, Germanicus instead decided on a sneakier way to ensure the soldiers' loyalty to its empire. He forged a letter from Tiberius promising to pay the soldiers money that they had not received due to Augustus passing away. The Germanic legions decided this was a good offer for the new emperor and started to calm down. This would have worked out if a real message from Tiberius had not arrived via envoy shortly thereafter. Now once more driven into a frenzy, the soldiers pulled Germanicus' family out of their beds one night and threatened to kill Agrippina and Caligula if they weren't properly compensated. It wasn't until Germanicus broke down in tears and begged for the safety of his wife and son that the soldiers realized they had probably gone too far. Germanicus had Agrippina and Caligula sent back to Rome and demanded an apology from the rebelling soldiers. Most of the legions apologized and fell back in line. They even organized to kill the leaders of the still revolting legions. I will say that this is a really weird and messed up chapter for the Julio-Claudian dynasty, but hey, that is what allows this show to be possible. I will also add here that his adopted brother Drusus was dealing with a similar case in Illyricum where he was able to put down the revolt due to, I kid you not, a lunar eclipse convincing the mutineers that the revolt was a bad idea. You love to see stuff like that. In the end, Germanicus ended up paying his soldiers out of his own pocket to ensure that they would remain loyal and in order to prevent them from growing complacent and possibly thinking of considering mutiny again, Germanicus realized it was once again time to organize the troops for a trip across the Rhine. In 15 CE, Germanicus led over 12,000 soldiers across the Rhine in order to put down the Chatti tribe, Things were going well in this war until suddenly Tiberius called for Germanicus to return to Rome. What was the problem? Danger? Another revolt? Was Tiberius ill? Nope. Tiberius was giving his adopted son another triumph. Being a good commander, Germanicus acknowledged the offer but said he would have to delay that triumph as he was kinda busy at the moment. He sailed his boats down the Rhine and eventually destroyed the capital of the Chati. A bit later, he even managed to find Arminius' wife, a woman named Thusnelda who also happened to be the daughter of a Roman loyal Germanic leader, and Thusnelda was transported across the Rhine into Roman territory. Now Germanicus had Arminius's pregnant wife and unborn child. After hearing about this, Arminius called for total war against the Romans. Germanicus continued fighting and achieved victories against the Berusci, one of the tribes loyal to Arminius. After this victory, the Roman army managed to make their way to the site of the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. For six years, the bodies of Roman soldiers had laid there, unburied. Germanicus and his soldiers took some time to give their fallen comrades a proper burial before they were once more forced into fighting. The Germanic campaign continued into the following year. Germanicus used his power as proconsul of Gaul to collect further taxes in order to raise reinforcements against Arminius. At one point during 16 CE, Germans destroyed a monument that had been erected in honor of Germanicus's father, Drusus. Germanicus had the monument rebuilt and the Romans celebrated traditional funerary games. Games like these were classic traditions in many ancient cultures like the Sumerians and the ancient Greeks. Throughout the rest of the year, Germanicus continued fighting in Germania. His army even confronted that of Arminius in two separate battles, though the Germanic leader managed to escape from being captured. Germanicus even managed to retrieve two of the three lost military standards captured after the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Germanicus's three separate campaigns in Germania finally culminated in the Emperor recalling him to Rome. There would be no final battle between Germanicus and Arminius. He would never conquer the entire region or retrieve the final standard. Historians tend to think this recall was due to Tiberius' fears that Germanicus was becoming more popular than himself. Germanicus's time in Germania had seen the young leader act fairly independently against Tiberius' wishes. If his adopted son had actually managed to conquer all of Germania, what would happen to the semi-unpopular Tiberius? Also because he's out of the story, let's briefly talk about what happened to Arminius he continued trying to amass power so he could take on the Roman Empire. This led him into hot water with some of his allies who feared that Arminius would become too powerful. In 21 CE, some of Arminius's allies rebelled against their leader and had him killed. Arminius's legacy would continue to grow throughout the course of history. Even contemporary Roman historians offered him praise for being able to stand up to the Roman military at the height of its power he became a symbol for Germanic nationalism following the German unification of the 19th century. However, like many symbols of Germanic nationalism, his role was drastically reduced following World War II. Germanicus returned to Rome in 17 CE to finally receive that triumph Tiberius had offered him a whole two years earlier. He rode through the streets of Rome accompanied by Agrippina and their five children. He was the most popular man in the Empire and with his family around him symbolized the hope and future of Rome. Germanicus was then elected consul for the year 18 CE. His co-consul was to be none other than the Emperor himself. Along with that honor, Tiberius granted Germanicus supreme control over the eastern provinces of the Empire in honor that Augustus had done a couple times when essentially proclaiming his heir to the Empire. Things were set up for Germanicus's future. From there, Tiberius ordered Germanicus to help settle military conflicts in Asia Minor, basically modern-day Turkey and areas just to the east. Germanicus set up shop in Syria where he quickly came into conflict with the newly confirmed Syrian proconsul, Piso. Both men thought that the other existed solely to undermine their operations. Germanicus also decided to go on a tour of the wonders of the eastern provinces. He visited Athens, the site of the Battle of Actium, and the site that was believed to be where the ancient city of Troy once stood. He crowned a new king in Armenia who was loyal to Rome and helped establish a new proconsul in the newly created province of Cappadocia in Turkey. Once more, Germanicus was proving himself to be the most popular and capable man in Rome. Things took a turn in 19 CE when Germanicus left Roman Syria for Egypt to help resolve a famine that was plaguing the province. Egypt was a very important territory for Rome as it was the main site of its grain storage. When Germanicus arrived, he was met with cheers from the people. However, Germanicus was also disobeying direct orders. When Augustus conquered Egypt after the death of Cleopatra, rules were enacted that no senator, which Germanicus basically was, could enter Egypt without first consulting the emperor and the senate. Germanicus had bypassed these consultations in order to deal with the problem head on. He lowered the price of grain and personally opened the doors of the storehouses. When Tiberius heard about this, he rebuked Germanicus for going over his head. Germanicus then decided it was probably time to return to Syria. Back in Syria, Proconsul Piso had been going about undoing all the hard work and appointments Germanicus had achieved. When Germanicus arrived, he publicly denounced Piso and attempted to have the Proconsul recalled to Rome. It was around this time that Germanicus fell ill. Germanicus believed that Piso, or Piso's wife, was trying to poison him with magic. Gizo eventually abandoned his post. Nonetheless, Germanicus still remained ill. He passed away on the 10th of October, 19 CE. With Germanicus dead, the future of the empire now passed on to Tiberius' natural born son, Drusus. With this quick turn in Drusus's fate, Agrippina thought that it was Drusus who ordered for Piso to poison her husband, although this probably wasn't the case considering Drusus had no problem with Germanicus. Still, the man who had been the shining light for the future of Rome was gone. He was honored with comparisons as Rome's own version of Alexander the Great, a brilliant soldier and politician who was taken too soon. We'll look further into if that's even an apt description of Alexander the Great down the line. Germanicus was supposed to have been emperor, and some people to this day still like to theorize what his tenure as ruler of Rome would have been like. Would he even have stayed emperor? One of the prevailing theories surrounding Germanicus' life was that he was actually very against the Principate and was secretly yearning for a return to the ideals of the Roman Republic. It's thoughts like these that create theories that Germanicus's death was orchestrated by Tiberius or Livia in order to keep the Empire strong, but the future of Tiberius's reign did not remain secure for long. As I mentioned briefly at the end of the last Julio-Claudian episode, Drusus was poisoned in 23 CE and passed away. Tiberius was thrown into a dark place. The future of the Empire was muddied and no one knew what would happen due to the fact that Tiberius wasn't naming a new successor. So how will the future of the Roman Empire fare? Well, that will be for the next installment in the Julio-Claudian saga. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. It's December when this episode and the next are coming out, so I thought I'd do a holiday-themed episode next time. But no, not Christmas. Instead, we're looking at the origins of Hanukkah as we follow the events led by Judah Maccabeus and his family.